everybody. Thank you for joining us for episode 25. Uh, today with us is Mehmet. Um, and Mehmet, for those who don't know you, would you uh, mind introducing yourself? Yeah. Hey, everyone. Uh, Mehmet here. Uh, I'm Cybermonk at on Twitter. And it's been, I think, 13th or 14th year uh, in the industry. And I have a bit of a, a diverse background, I can say. I started as a network engineer and then did some work on network security, all kinds of stuff. And then I jumped into the uh, cybersecurity area after the first WannaCry uh, uh, spread in the world, I think. And since the last last three years, uh, I've been doing threat research, threat hunting, and threat detection, and uh, writing blogs. Mm-hmm. And apart from that, yeah, I, I like dancing and also playing handpan. And Sweet. that's me. Handpan is that's uh I think I don't know if you were telling me about this, but it's quite yes. relaxing, isn't it? It's a good way to Yeah, you know. exactly. It's an amazing instrument. Yeah. Not so popular, but it's amazing. Do you have it with you right now? Maybe we could get a little uh demo yeah, at let's the see. end of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, let's see how that goes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can try. Okay, cool. Um yeah, dude. So yeah, really excited to finally get to talk to you. We had for those that are just listening, we had a little little hiccup on my part from a scheduling conflict. So we were supposed to record this last week, but I had to had to reschedule. So I'm really glad that Mehmet was able to kind of accommodate that and work with us. Um we have a lot of ideas that we've kind of like just across Twitter. We this is the first time we've actually spoken in person or in per whatever, I don't know, where we could see each other, I guess, or verbally. But we've we've encountered each other on Twitter quite a bit. And I think that uh, we're thinking along the same lines about a bunch of things. And so I think it's really, really interesting. One of the uh, topics that I've been interested in in really recently is uh, related to trying to figure out how can we evaluate, you know, from a more objective perspective, whether our detections are actually solving the problem that we that we're trying to solve. Right. So um, we've we've seen things like. Uh, the MITRE ATT&CK heat map, for for example, to where people will say, oh, well, you know, on credential dumping, our coverage is green, whatever that may mean, or on curb roasting, it's it's yellow. Uh, but that seems to be pretty subject, subjective. I think, uh, you know, something's better than nothing. So as long as you're being somewhat honest in your approach to that, it's probably a good start, at least. Uh, but one of my questions that I'm trying to really get interested, that I'm really interested in is how do we start to convert that from just like, you know, a feeling to something that is actually measurable. And of course, there's tons of different ways that we can measure that. Um, One of the ways that I've started to play around with this is through something I call function call graphs. And, you know, the name is not not super creative. And I'm also open to better names if anybody anybody runs into it. But the the general idea is is to use uh, like graph theory or like a a Neo4j type graph to show how uh, when somebody implements a tool, the actual function calls that occur kind of uh, in a graph format, right? And so uh, one of the examples that I, that I use is uh, for credential dumping from LSAS, right? And so uh, there's, for instance, Mimikatz. And Mimikatz, one of the ways that it works is they'll use uh, read process memory to read the memory of LSAS. And so read process memory, you know, call that is implemented in kernel 32, and that calls a version of read process memory in kernel base, which then calls you know a native native function called nt read virtual memory, I believe, which then makes a syscall and then eventually accesses memory in the kernel. Um, and then there's another tool um, that can 
achieve the same objective, same behavior, you might say. Um, and that's actually a good question that we could talk about later is like, what does it mean? What is a behavior? Right. Uh -huh. Cause that's a, I think that's a interesting thing that people disagree on a lot. Um, so it called out mini dump and what out mini dump does is it calls a, a function called mini dump, write dump, which is different than read process memory. But eventually those two paths, you could say the paths, the function calls converge, right. And they actually converge on, uh, not the initial read process memory in kernel 32, but in the, uh, read process memory in kernel base.dll, right? So it's uh, kind of like an undocumented internal uh, function, right? Um, one of the things that that leads me to think is when we start thinking about testing, right? So one of the ideas uh, of tools like Atomic Red Team or uh, like the, the products, the vendor products that are in the same space as Atomic Red Team, um, one of the things that they do is they create these tests and then you run those tests against your environment and you evaluate whether or not your detection rules will actually capture that test. Um, and one of the one of the general ideas that people will um, espouse, I've espoused it in the past, is the more tests you implement, the better you have an idea of your coverage, right? Uh, but I, I, to me, that seems like a good start, and it's probably true to some extent. Like you know, two is better than one, almost certainly. Um, but I think there's another factor that's a quantity factor. It's not really a, a qualitative factor. And the qualitative factor is like, if I only, if I can use two to let's say two implementations or two procedural tools for uh, implementing a behavior, I like, it's better for me to test two tools that are more different than they are the same. So for instance, I, I say like Mimikatz and invoke Mimikatz are two tools, but they're basically the same thing. Right. Um, and then there's a third tool out mini dump. Well, if I had to pick two of those to estimate my coverage of credential dumping from LSAS, I would choose uh, Mimikatz or Invoke Mimikatz and uh, Out Mini Dump because those are more different than the same. I don't like uh, that. Might be a good place to stop and kind of let other folks jump in. I think, and then we could go. From yeah, there. I think it. To me, uh, it all comes down to the uh, data that is available to me to. Yeah. To do that research for example if i have the visibility through the api calls or the function calls maybe i can uh, i can do a research and see all the available options and the possibilities and then start working on it like creating a graph uh, and then finding your choke points for example mm -hmm. yeah and then uh, well maybe not detecting it at least classifying it as uh, as an action or as a behavior or whatever you call. Yeah. Uh, but uh, from a procedural perspective, uh, to me, it's quite difficult to go in that level. For example, yeah, uh, do I have the API monitoring uh, logs? Uh, Mitre says, yeah, you need to monitor the API calls. Uh, that's fine. But if we look from the reality, uh, if you look at the most of the customers, they don't even have uh, proper security event logging available. And even if you do that kind of research, uh, I usually ask uh, how much value I'm adding to uh, this type of detection. But on the other hand, if you are working for, a uh, let's say, an EDR company, or if you are developing an EDR product, that is perfectly mm -hmm. fine, because I think that's what you should be doing uh, in yeah. terms of that research and finding those stuff. Okay, so I think um, 
are you thinking about this from the perspective of detecting on the API call? Because that, that's not necessarily how I'm thinking about this, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in general, not the, from exactly the API call, but whatever available, uh, whatever is available to me. It, yeah. it, it depends on that. I, I think whenever I think of this, so if we're taking dumping LSAS as an example, I think right now, currently, like, what's the common way people detect that, like, dumping LSAS? And oftentimes, like, depending on the sensor you have, like, you have MDE, for example, you have the um, the read memory kind of event there. Yeah. But other ways is, like, say, like, via, like, open process, via, like, the access mask, right? I don't even view the open process necessarily as part of the behavior of dumping LSAS. I see that as, like, the entryway into the behavior of dumping LSS because in order for you to dump LSS, you need that handle, right? But yep. that isn't technically reading memory. Like the, the technique in itself, the action or behavior is specific to reading memory. But the reason why we have to back up and go to that level of detection is because telemetry doesn't exist all the time at that other la layer. Not all and so I look at have, have that visibility is what you're saying. Precisely, yeah. So like, they have to take what like, you know, Jared and I like to call like the, I don't know if this is the correct, there's probably a better term, but I call it the pre-action or like the entry into the attack, yep. which in this case would be the open process. And that is where they're detecting that. But at the intra-action or the actual action or that's being performed, that isn't always available to somebody else because again, like API monitoring is not always available to every sensor um, or they might be leveraging that telemetry correctly. Yeah, so I think that's a, a really good conversation that we, we should have. Uh, I just, I want to back up a second to kind of like go go back to what I was talking about because I think they're related, yeah. but I think, that, uh -huh. I think it changes. Um, the, like, so what, I, what I'm thinking about with the graph is you do, you do have like in a lab, I, if I have the tool out mini dump, right? Or I have a command line that I read in a threat report. In a lab, I can evaluate the API calls because I do have things like API monitor or, uh, when debug to be able to evaluate that, and so I'm not I'm not necessarily worried about how you detect the tools, but like when I build the graph, what I'm doing is I'm saying this is actually how these things function, right? And that that we we all have the tools to do that in the lab, um, whether we have the skills to do it, maybe maybe not, right? But the like we all have that tool, and then what we could do is we could say, I know that these two implementations are are quite different. And so if I have a detection rule that detects both, I can assume that that detection rule is relatively robust. And like, but it doesn't matter how that detection rule, like to some degree, it doesn't matter uh -huh. how that detection rule actually does the detection. Um, because the, the idea, it's almost like, uh, I think of it like GPS, right? So if you only have access to one satellite in the GPS constellation, you, it doesn't have, it like literally can't determine where you're at, right? It like has a gigantic range. But the more, this may not be literally true, but the, the more GPS satellites that you have connection to, the more precise the location gets, right? And so the idea is, is that um, we don't have the ability to uh, define exactly what the behavior of interest is that we're trying to detect, but we have a bunch of tools that show, that, have, that are similar in function, right? And so we could start to use those tools to, uh, like kind of zero in on what it is that we're interested in. And then we could evaluate the ability for a single detection to capture multiple different procedures. Um, and then we could, we could use that ability to detect those multiple procedures to uh, like kind of assume or 
um, extrapolate the coverage that we're able to provide, right? So like, for instance, if you have five different procedures and you, it takes five different detections to detect those five procedures, you have, you probably have very superficial detections, right? If you have five, uh, dissimilar, like, let's assume these are dissimilar, dissimilar, uh, procedures, and you're able to detect them all using one detection rule, then that's probably a fairly robust de detection rule, right? And that's, that's the idea. So like, the idea of the function calls, that's only for allowing me to identify how dissimilar things uh -huh. are. And then from there, it's like you either detect them or you don't to some degree, right? Um, and then we could extrapolate. And like you could even say, okay, well, this one, this one detection happens to be very robust. So what is it doing to detect? Like how is it detecting these, these things? And then you could kind of extrapolate that that might be, a, that might be the thing, the like centralized idea of what this uh this attack technique actually represents i suppose um yeah i i usually uh, try to do the same approach mm -hmm. but uh, most of the time not on the procedure level uh, because to me it's like there are uh, infinite number of uh, yep. procedures that you can uh, that you can execute and that you can uh, develop your tool uh, based on that but on the other hand if i go up one level to the technique or sub-technique, then uh, most of the time you have some sort of artifact, uh, depending on the procedure or depending on the technique. For example, uh, if you are trying to create a scheduled task, then uh, there will be an event in the event viewer. And can it be evaded? Uh, there might be ways to do that. But if you can also, um, collect the logs from the registry, then you can say there is definitely something in the registry and no matter what kind of tool you use to create that schedule task. And I also usually try to ask this question, what makes it, uh, what makes something malicious or suspicious? Because is it the creating of the, how you create the schedule task or is it the content that is put in the schedule task itself. And, and that part is quite important uh, to me. And most of the time, uh, I, trans I try to answer that question. So what makes it suspicious or malicious? Mm -hmm. And what is the, or where is the most suitable uh, place that I can uh, put my detection or focus on? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yes, all those are good points. I want to touch on a couple things. Uh, Partially because I've been looking, because I've been like redoing the scheduled task abstraction map last week. So a couple of points on that. Um, but before that, so we were always talking about like procedures, um, how to and what to detect on. I feel like there is a barrier to entry when approaching a new technique that all, like there's like a, I don't know, a ladder that needs to be hit. Um, and I can see in some instances where maybe a detection rule for something kind of procedural based is there. The issue that I see though a lot of the times is that seems to be the barrier to like of stoppage that happens, right? They enter at that point, they stop at that point in terms of detection. Not much moves past that point. Whenever there's so many other options, like you mentioned, there is that window security event, right? That gives you, that actually parses out that XML uh, content for the scheduled task, right? So that'd be great, you know, seeing what's in there. The question is, like, where does that event come from? Well, I assume it comes probably from the RPC event that happens whenever scheduled task happens both locally and remotely. So 
is there a way you could create a scheduled task similarly to services um, where you don't trigger the RPC call? Potentially, right? So then you might go to the registry, but each one of those are a layer up, which are more difficult as you go up that ladder. But I think the net you cast in terms of false negatives are going to, is going to be wider because you're going to catch a lot more things. But yeah. then I think this is a this is probably where Jared is going to move into. Like I see is the decision making on classification needs to be a very um, very well thought out process because we might cast a lot large net, but then there's like there is like analyst fatigue, right? So like looking at all these events coming in, like okay, well these are going to be the four things I'm going to look at. They're not there. I'm going to I'm going to pass it off. Well, are those four things the right process that's going to vary per schedule task right on determining what's malicious what isn't malicious etc so like i think that's what i think of when it comes in terms of like detection and like classification identify what level that we're going to detect that then move into what does that lead into classification in terms of like what context do i need in order to classify this appropriately because as we go up i would argue you probably need more and more context Mm. um to pass that off for classification to be done appropriately. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree on that. Uh, you definitely need more context because you don't know uh, how it happened and who did it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You just have uh, a single event that says ah, there's a scheduled task and this is the content. Yeah. Then you need to parse that event, of course, to see or to analyze if it's malicious or not. And that's, the, I think, uh, the disadvantage of uh, using high level uh, uh, techniques or high level methods. Yeah, and like to that point, like there's a like there are some sensors out there like that that capture scheduled task events, but they're different than like the Windows security event for example, because the Windows security event you'll see parses out the XML where like there is actually a task scheduler ETW provider that doesn't parse out the XML. It'll just tell you that the it'll just tell you that scheduled task was created. And so you have like the RPC side, then you have the ET, like this task schedule ETW, and a lot of them are doing the more ETW side in terms of not giving the context to the analyst. So now there needs to be some type of process there that goes and pulls that contents out so that it's there for the analyst instead of them having to go to manually go do that. There, there's also potentially an issue, I think, Mehmet, you touched on this uh, earlier, but there's an issue of just because something tells you that it captures when s- scheduled tasks are created doesn't mean that it actually does capture when all scheduled tasks are created. And actually, like the idea that a scheduled task is created but isn't captured by the um, by the event log that's meant to capture scheduled task creation, that's actually indicative. Like that's context in and of itself, right? Um, and that like going back to the function graph thing, you can actually map out exactly where the event log is generated and you can map out all of the paths in which the like an e- you can create a scheduled task without triggering the event log and so there's actually context like you could you could predict those right and then you could start to make sure that you're uh, evaluating those but just because it it's one of those things to where not all malicious scheduled tasks will be captured by the event log but not all scheduled tasks that are not captured by the event log are malicious but i would imagine that there's a pretty high correlative factor that says that if a scheduled task is created and not cr- like captured by the event log that means they used an abnormal path basically that's like that's what it yeah, tells exactly. me 
and uh, that I would imagine correlates more strongly with being malicious. It's probably a, like probably one of the better uh, features, but it's not the only feature, and it may it's not going to be a comprehensive feature either. Yeah, and to that point, um, there are technical ways of uh, let's say. Uh, first of all, now I think since the last uh, two months, I I entered in the DFIR area, so okay. I'm not doing uh, threat detection uh, sure, per sure. se, and I'm still uh, interested in it, and I will do some stuff. Now, uh, when I look at the DFIR part, and you have all the related information at a certain point, so now what I see uh, is that um, when you get an event, say that says there's a scheduled task created and without any context there are ways to get that content uh, from that event not from the event sorry from the machine that reported the event so you can basically go to that machine and then uh, get the either uh, run auto runs automatically remotely or from the registry it gets the scheduled uh, scheduled task information and you can correlate that information and do extra analysis before creating an alert for the SOC analyst. Sure. So that could be an option. I think uh, what at the moment what I see is that it's it's like a there's kind of a convergence uh, uh, that's gonna happen in in the future. But because the conver convergence between what be, between the DFIR or the IR and the threat detection. Mm. So there's gonna be some sort of how to say. An alerting mechanism, which will probably create alerts that are low fidelity or low severity, yeah. and that are a bit noisy. Okay. But on the other hand, there will be like a SOAR platform, but I don't want to call it as a SOAR platform. Yeah. That there is gonna be some sort of mechanism uh, yeah. that will uh, get all those noise alerts and put more context in it, and another layer of uh, analysis will reduce that noise and then just creates like your uh, funnel of fidelity. Yep, uh, yeah, I it, think there's it will, a... It will create something with more context in it. Yeah, I think there's something about like, we we want to um, create a multi-phase process, right? And we want the multi-phase process to be as inclusive as possible. So there's, uh, there's actually this principle uh, called like you want the maximum information this was roger brown was a social psychologist and he he had a principle that was you want to uh gain the maximum information for the minimal cognitive effort so there's something like um let's let's i'll, I'll i'm gonna talk through like a literal example of this of what you were talking about so it's like okay uh we know we, like we know I, I think this is a good assumption johnny tell me if you know this to be actually fact but i'm almost certain it's true uh, it is possible to create a scheduled task without triggering a 46, what is it? Uh, what's the event? 4798 or something? 40, 4698. 4698, I think. Yeah, 4698. So it's possible to create a scheduled task. And then, so one of the ways that you would, like as a de detection person, you would circumvent that is you would look for like a certain registry key or a certain file to be created. And that's going to be comprehensive. So, so not to interrupt you, yep. theoretically, yes. Because technically you could create the XML file yep. and you could just put it in the registry. Yep. But through my research, like 
all the appropriate ways, like through tools and com and all of that, it all calls RPC under the hood eventually, which would trigger that event. Oh, okay. So if um, but there was there was a way of creating that schedule task. I mean, that there was a block like it it was evading something, but I don't remember what it was exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just assume that it that yeah. it, uh, you could. Yeah. It's possible to create a schedule task uh, directly by creating the XML file that won't generate the event. So that may not be true. I don't know for sure, but um, let's just assume that it's not. So now I'm looking for file creation. Well, a file creation gives you almost no information about, no context about the uh, schedule task to be able to determine whether it's malicious. It doesn't give you the trigger. It doesn't, it gives you the name basically, right? But it doesn't give you the trigger. It doesn't give you who created it. It doesn't tell you if it was created remotely or not necessarily. Um, like it doesn't, give you very much to work with. And so I think what you're kind of talking about, Mehmet, is like, yeah, that's good enough to create an alert, but it's not good enough for any, like there's a lot of work that has to be done on top of that to be able to evaluate. Even if you are looking at the 4698 event, um, you might get something like, this is the action that's going to occur and it points to a binary that's on disk, but you don't have like, say the, the hash of the binary or you don't have a copy of the binary itself. So that, and, the binary that gets executed is probably an, I'm guessing here, but it's probably an important feature uh, in and of itself, right? So like if that binary is malicious, then the server, the schedule task is probably, probably malicious. Okay, so there's this idea of like, there's some amount of features that you get just from the initial event that notifies you that this thing was created, but there's additional information that you probably want to, that you want to gather. And that would be some sort of, like you said, some sort of SOAR type uh, response to where it's like, we get this alert, and then I need you to go and gather some additional information about this. So maybe pull back the binary that's associated with it, at least get the hash so that we can then run it ac across virus total to see, you know, for instance, is it signed? Is it a known binary? All that type of stuff. Um, maybe get, like, actually get the XML data, assuming that we're triggering on like a file creation event. And then maybe there's something that happened, like, so you get the data, you get the features, and then maybe you even apply a model to it that says, uh, these are the types of feature, like, if this feature is this thing, then that gives me some confidence that it's malicious or that it's benign, whatever. And then you present it to an analyst. So an, a human analyst doesn't get the initial alert, which is a file was created. They get something that uh, the file's created. We gather all the context that we deem to be important for determining things. We maybe run some model to get rid of all the obviously benign and obviously malicious. Uh -huh. And then we present the remainder to... Uh, to an analyst to kind of triage quickly is the general idea. Does that yeah. sound kind of what you're thinking? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because there are there are lots of things that uh, that we can do uh, on the endpoint itself after, let's say that uh, that type of uh, simple alert creation. Mm -hmm. Because you can even run uh, Yara uh, on the endpoint to see if there's any suspicious uh, stuff uh, in in that binary or XML file, whatever. And then again, uh, put an or put a risk score on it, and then provide that information to the analyst. And based on maybe the risk risk score, yeah, uh, you can maybe filter out or uh, put some thresholds to send it to the uh, analyst for further uh, investigation. Yeah, it seems to me on the the risk score topic, it seems like there's um, 
it's better to view the risk score as a threshold, like you just said, to where you, um, I saw there's this great paper about an algorithm called Hopper. So we, we interviewed the guys that made the algorithm. They, they were uh, UC Berkeley PhD students. Yeah, I've, I've read the paper as well. Okay. Yeah, and one of the things that I liked about what they did is they, they kind of said, we're going to create like, I don't know what they called it, but an alert quota, which says like, we're willing to accept five alerts a day um from this from this and like it wasn't literally five alerts but it was like averaged out over some period of time or something like that and and then like the threshold changes based on your alert quota right but then they also did the math to say um if you only allow five alerts per day then your efficacy is like 85 percent. but if you allowed 10 alerts a day then you would have like a 98 percent efficacy of uh the algorithm and i i think that's there's the the big problem is is that we don't know what makes the scheduled task malicious uh, one of the things that, I, that I've run into in a project I'm working on with uh, Will Schroeder um, is like one of the things that we're trying to do is test whether or not a string is random, right? And randomness is actually like a really difficult, like determining whether a string is random is actually like a, an unsolved problem, uh, which I, like I didn't know. I was completely ignorant to that because I thought entropy was like if you have a high entropy string, then it's you could deem it to be random. But apparently uh, the string hi, my name is Will, it has a higher entropy than like X, A, B, D, C, you know, like just uh, some random eight character yeah. string. And so then it's like, okay, well, if entropy doesn't represent randomness, what does? And there's this weird thing to where humans, if I presented a human with 10 strings and one or two of them were random, the ability of the human to pick out or select the two random strings is like very high. We'd say like ninety percent probably uh, efficacy on that. But um, but then if I like ask those humans to tell a machine how to identify the random strings, uh, the the efficacy would be lower, almost a hundred percent because nobody knows what makes like we don't we're not able to take our mental process and like extract that and write it down in like a, a propositional form if that makes sense. And so yeah, there's this weird yeah. thing to where. But then if I, if I presented you with 10 scheduled tasks, uh, your ability to, you being generic you, uh, your ability to identify which of the 10 scheduled tasks are malicious is certainly lower than your ability to identify which of the strings are random, 100%. Do you, do you think when it comes to like identification and classification, which, which do you think, like this is gonna change per person their skill set, right? Yeah. But averagely, which one do you think is typically more difficult for someone to accomplish? Identification for detection yeah. or classification of malicious and benign? Uh, I, so I think there's this book called uh, It's Not Complicated. And they talk about the difference between complex, complicated and complex systems. And complicated systems are, uh, it's technically difficult to solve. But once you solve it, there's, there is an answer. And then complex systems are, there's so many variables that we have no idea how, like, we can't actually solve it, but we can manage the problem to some degree by becoming more and more accurate over time. And I think identification, which is, uh, if somebody creates a scheduled task, how do I know that a scheduled task was created? Do I just rely on the 4698 event or do I need to do something different? I think that that, through like that function call graph and the abstraction map, I think that that's a complicated problem. It's like, you don't know it just naturally, but you can figure it out and you could get to the answer to where you have a hundred, basically a hundred percent accuracy uh, with yeah. like assuming that your sensors aren't jacked up and all that kind of stuff. I think uh, classification, which is 
okay, now we've identified all the scheduled tasks and now we want to distinguish between malicious and benign scheduled tasks. That's a complex question. And I think that like the ability to have 100% accuracy on that is doesn't exist, basically. Yeah. I don't know side, plug for, uh, side plug for uh, Avril Lavigne when you said complicated remind me of her song why you gotta be so complicated so if you guys haven't heard that song can you give us a little shout probably would but i don't listen i usually make people pay for that type of uh skill set you know what i'm saying i don't do that stuff for free gotcha um but uh if it's requested i think maybe one of these days i could hit a note a, a tune or two anyways i think um when it comes to identification and classification the reason why i ask is i don't know if classification can be fully achieved without proper identification Right. Because like if you are misidentifying behaviors, then inherently you're you're misqualif you're misclassifying them as well. Your um, error your error yeah. in identification propagates to classification for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I think if the question would be to be like, does a team need to focus on identification or classification? It should definitely be the the first part, identification of those two simply because that's going to lead into a better classification process. Now, again, like when it comes to the detection and identification, not everyone, depending on their tools, obviously are going to be able to go at the very like mid-level behavioral base, right? I do think it is smart at the beginning to start procedural, but like we've kind of been talking about, that just is like the, the stopping point for so many teams when there's so much more above that threshold that could be obtained. But it's just the fear of being so false positive sensitive um, is, I think, what is limiting people from up, like going past that threshold. Yeah. Do, do you mean uh, from procedure level to uh, a higher level, like the techniques, or? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 To me, it's it's a bit uh, the opposite. Uh, I usually look, look everything from the technique perspective and I try to keep away myself from the uh, procedure levels. Uh, as long as, of course, there is something really specific that makes something malicious, definitely. Yeah. Well, I think like in terms of, we're talking about like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, detection layering. Like the hmm. whole point of detection layering is to to map either different like behaviors within a technique and or procedurals into kind of this whole like detection spectrum thing that you might have. So obviously the precise indicators have a place um, somewhere because if you hit on that, you can kind of be like, because uh, Jared and I were just like talking the other day um, about like scheduled tasks and maybe like hashing the XML or like parsing it out and looking for something very specific in it. That's very precise. It might hold a place but there's so much above that threshold. The issue is if you're so used to being above that threshold in terms of techniques and behaviors, you kind of become desanitized to like, what, why not, why not catch that low hanging fruit? If you can catch that low hanging fruit, they're easy wins. You just plug them in and they go. Yeah. But if we're always looking at the behavior and technique in my head, we tend to overcomplicate the problem instead of leveraging the procedures where we can. But then again, like, I'm I'm saying this all is I am not pro procedure detections day in and day out. I am pro let's 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 use what we have to get the best coverage that we can get. Okay, I think there's a there's a weird thing with procedures and techniques, right? So techniques are literally an abstract concept. They like a technique 
doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. You can't do a technique without doing a procedure, right? Mm-hmm. However, um, there, for like a technique is like basically a container for some sort of behavior, common behavior, or like uh, in attack circles, they would like not uh, miter attack, but like attacker circles, they would refer to it as like a primitive, an attack primitive, something that uh, you can build upon to achieve some objective. And I think there's there's this thing of like uh, Mimit. Re- uh, you earlier said that there's an infinite number of procedures to achieve some technique outcome or behavioral outcome. And that's true. And that's, this is the exact reason why uh, it's dangerous to focus only on the procedural level, because you're never like, you literally can't, it's impossible, cover every possible procedure, right? Uh, And like your perception of what procedures there are is limited, inherently limited by your ability to observe behavior and that type of thing, right? So but then the question, the reason why techniques are interesting is it's like, okay, there's an infinite number of procedures, but most of the procedures tend to be more similar than they are different. And therefore, what we can, what we can start to do is we can start to say, what, what does the meta procedure look like? The, the, like the procedure of all procedures. Like, what, like if we were to summarize 50 different procedural implementations of the same behavior, how would we summarize that? And that summary is what the what the technique is, right? And so, and like what you're saying is, I think. Tell me if I'm wrong. The uh, there's there is potentially Johnny. I think what you're saying is there's potentially value in detecting known procedures because you know you're kind of stupid if you don't because it's an easy win, I guess. However, if you stop there, which a lot of people do, um, then like you're acting, you're putting your head in the sand to some degree, to where you're acting as if it's not trivial for somebody to change the procedure in a way that would evade your detection. Yeah, for, and I think yeah, it, lots of people, uh, I mean, from what I see on Twitter, and people are tend to focus only on that procedures, especially like the specific command line options, yeah. which could easily be changed. And I personally, I do not understand why uh, we are trying to detect that kind of procedure. But okay, if... Uh, Let's say that there's a uh, command or executable in, in the Windows uh, operating system that takes only three arguments and you cannot change it. Of course, you should go for that. So yeah, yeah. I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm totally uh, up for that. So if if it is something uh, at that level and precision, uh, then that's okay. But when I look at a procedure and if I see it, it can be easily changed or modified, then I tend to avoid yep. creating a detection for it. Yep. There's I kind think... of there's kind of like a hierarchy of uh, features on like in terms of w- how much control does the attacker have. So Matt Graver and Lee Lee Christensen did some work on this, uh, and they did gave a black hat talk about um, something like evading Sysmon or something like that. Sub- subverting Sysmon. Subverting Sysmon, and. Uh, their their general one of the things that they measured there was how much control does the attacker have over certain features and then the idea is is that the more control an attacker has the less you should rely on that in your detection approach and i i think that like i i have maybe some qualms with the exact implementation of like the pyramid of pain for instance but i think that's generally the the idea like the meta idea behind the pyramid of pain is like try to not focus on the things that the attackers can change, but focus on the things that uh, if they want to do this type of behavior, they can't change. 
Yeah, I think um, the issue with procedural based detections are two things. And one of which you and I have talked about, Jared. The first one is um, oftentimes uh, when you do something at procedural detection based, that is typically on the client side, meaning like the attacker has control over that execution or what that procedure may be. If we really want to detect things on the behavior side, we want to detect on the server side. So what is actually um, executing or going out and performing that behavior? The second one, and this is what you and I have talked about, Jared, is the amount of time it takes to kind of, quote unquote, research all the different procedural possibilities of a given technique, that time could have been put into researching the technique itself and maybe coming up with a broader detection at a technique behavioral basis versus like 10, 15 procedural ones, all of which are easily evaded. Um and so like your efforts might have been more worthwhile if you would have just gone a layer up. Um, yeah. And I've, I've noticed that quite a bit as well, because I think there was something out a while back and there was like a talk between a couple of people on Twitter. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was RPC related. And they were like, why don't we de- why don't we like detect on like this specific command line RPC? So like, no, that's just that's RPC. Like that's a service starting. So like that, that's not going to help you out, because if you. And I see that oftentimes when you do it from procedural basis, mm. you misunderstand the technology that's going and executing I, whatever behavior so that is. I'm curious if that's a um, that like mis mis misassigning certain actions on the computer to being to like the way the miscorrelation, I guess, is what you would call that. But I I, I attribute that maybe more to uh, using dynamic analysis only without ever validating it by a static analysis to some degree, right? So it's like there's, yeah. there is tons of value in, in uh, like a dynamic analysis approach, which is for those that aren't familiar, it's just like run the thing and see what happens, right? Is basically basically what, what it is. And this is like a malware analysis uh, approach, but it like it's at least popular uh, popularized from malware analysis, but I think it's true in detection as well. So like Roberto Rodriguez uh, has a lot of stuff that he came out with that was related to that. Um, but I like, and that that gets you a a lot of value really quick. But it does have like one downside, and the downside is is that it's not possible really through dynamic analysis to say this action that happened to occur around the time that I ran the thing is one hundred percent related to the thing that I that I did, right? So it's a good starting point, and then I I think that you need to follow it up with static analysis, which is let me go find exactly where that happened. And make sure that it is one hundred percent like causal to the actions that that the you know procedure took or whatever. Yeah, my my approach is actually the opposite of that. So like I start with this the static analysis. So yeah. I like start off by identifying okay what can actually go through and execute these things, and then I try to follow that code flow, and then I try to verify my assumptions via like dynamic analysis. Yeah. Just because I'm like okay like this is what I believe because it's what the code I think the code is telling me right. You know sometimes I'm just an idiot and you know it's hard to recode. But anyways, then I go like, I go like, cool. This cements my hypothesis. Yeah. And then I'm. I think that's happy uh, that. I, like I think static analysis is harder. It's like a harder skill set to acquire, and so I think people tend to start with dynamic analysis just as a, literally, uh, like you don't know, like there there was a point at like I don't have I'm okay at static analysis, but I'm not like an expert, you could say. But like I was better at dynamic analysis much quicker than I was at static analysis. And so you start there. It's a sim- similar reason why people go for like the superficial procedural 
type detections is like we said classification is freaking hard right so like doing a technique based classification is really complex and complicated and like you have to understand a lot about um like it's basically like classification is a machine learning problem right uh-huh. um the and like and so it's really hard and so kind of the the result my perception of the result is that's too hard so we're going to do the thing that's easier but i think the problem with that is it's okay if it's too hard for you right now as long as you are willing to admit that like your alternative has issues right or has yeah. blind spots and i think i think what happens is people will say that's too hard and then they go to the easier solution and act as if that's sufficient. I think that's kind of the thesis that we're that we've been putting out is people will act as if the half measure is sufficient. Yeah, I think the important thing is that uh, be accepting the risks that you have on, on after you either uh, did static analysis or dynamic analysis and put a detection based on that. And mm-hmm. I'm also not uh, at a static analysis person. And I usually try to experiment and observe yeah. what's happening. But the way, for example, especially for me, the way I observe might be a bit different um, than how you observe things. And I try to generalize or I try to see uh, like the choke points based on the observation instead of, for example, uh, doing the static analysis. Yeah. Yeah. I so I guess. Like- Oh, oh. I, like one thing, I think like going back to that function call graph, one of the benefits, like probably the initial benefit before I th- started thinking about the similarity, dissimilarity is you can take different procedures and you could graph them out on the function call graph. And then eventually you will see there's going to be some node, some function to where all implementations converge basically. Right. And, and that is going to be basically what you're getting from dynamic analysis to where when you say like, for instance, we know we know that scheduled tasks create a file, that an XML file. Like you didn't know that when you started, right? And so you had like we we could look back and say that we know that, but we didn't know it when we started. Maybe you read it in a blog post, maybe you got it through te- actual testing, but at some point nobody knew that. Um, and so the question is, how do we learn that the first time? Well, one way is to dynamically analyze numerous. Like you could do it once, but obviously, if you do it once, you can't. It's harder to say this is for sure related to the thing that I did. But maybe you take multiple different implementations and then you say, what do they what do they all seem to have in common? And then that becomes your convergence point or like your actual behavior or whatever you want to call it. But you could evaluate that through static analysis through like the function call graph as well to where like uh, I have the services function call graph, service creation. And the thing that they all converge on is at the end, they all create a registry key, no matter how you you do it um and so that's the convergence point and that like you could evaluate that from both directions i suppose yeah so Mehmet, you mentioned that like you don't really do the static analysis you go into like dynamic observance and then you try to identify choke points so what is your typical approach when doing that and how are you able to identify choke points without leveraging static analysis and identifying that code flow appropriately um yeah in the past what i did was um, so first of all, the testing or developing something in a lab environment is quite difficult. And most of the time it doesn't make sense because you don't have a real environment. And in the past, in my previous job, what I did was I created my own environment and then um, 
enrolled my machines, the lab machines, to the production environment. But there was there there was a total isolation, so there was nothing in between. Just uh, I I was sending the telemetry uh, to our production environment, so that when I do the uh, dynamic testing and see the events, I was able to see if those events are specific to the attack itself, or if uh, they happen all the time in the environment. Based on that, I I was. I used to uh, find that choke points. I don't know if I remember uh, any examples. Uh, let's say there are some of the Autoranskis. So if I create something, uh, since in an environment, for example, you might have uh, tens or thousands of machines, and each of them might have different Autorans because of the applications that the employees use based on their uh, business requirements. And if you just say, okay, let's, uh, you need to monitor this ranky, but there are lots of entries in that. So what I do is usually I create the entry and then see how it is different uh, or how it looks in a production environment. And this way I, I was able to find those choke points. And there, recently I did the, exact approach with the Kerberos relaying, for example. I tested it in a, in a test environment, and then I saw some uh, logs uh, being generated. And there was something uh, quite custom. There was a port number, for example, one, two, three, four, five. So then I thought, okay, probably this port number could be changed. And I tried to analyze the code itself uh, on GitHub uh, and then see, yeah, it was uh, statically written and you can easily change that. And I changed my approach instead of looking that specific port number, I made it generic so that it doesn't matter which port you use. So this is how, how I approach uh, from a dynamic testing or dynamic analysis uh, perspective. Yeah, I think uh, one interesting thing about this like problem of understanding how a behavior works or how a technique works is uh, the the way that scheduled task creation works or Kerberos relaying works is the same for me as it is for you, right? So like literally the same, like if I do a function call graph, for instance, or an abstraction mm -hmm. map, or you do dynamic analysis and look at the logs, the answer is the same for, for all of us, right? And so like we can actually, that's actually something that I think very easily could be democratized or like shared across. So it's like, if I have a certain skill set that maybe you don't have, or Johnny has a skill set that I don't have, or you have a skill set that I don't have, like we could all complement each other and share that information with one another. The, the part that doesn't scale or doesn't democratize or uh, isn't applicable across companies is the, what do I do with that information, right? Because then you're dealing with, you know, do, what type of SIM do you have? What telemetry, what sensors are you using? How do you, like, what's your, what's your actual pipeline look like? Do you have the ability to do that multi-phased approach that we talked about to where you have this superficial alert, but then it gets followed up by some sort of automated task to gather additional features? Do you have the ability to do multivariate analysis or are, are you limited to like simple Boolean logic to where you say, if, 
this thing is set, if a service is set to auto start, then I want you to alert on it. Is that as complicated as you can get? Um, or can you do something with weighted, you know, feature scoring and things like that? So that that's where it gets really complicated. But the the fact remains that like, there's only certain paths that someone can take in order to create a service or to create a scheduled task or to perform Kerber roasting, for instance. And like, that's going to be static. And that like, that's how we start to look at the problem, in my opinion, in the same way that attackers are looking at the problem. Because what they're doing is they're saying, okay, here's the here's the official path, right? So like scheduled tasks, it's like, how does SCH tasks create scheduled tasks? Because that's probably like the supported official way to do it. And then it's like, okay, can I can I do that same thing in a different enough way that it's not that it's not the same, right? And then like, what are the implications on detection? So if somebody, one of the big problems is is that uh, defenders assume uh, they may not know that they're assuming this, but a lot of times they assume that people will use the default way to accomplish some behavior, um, and then the attacker that chooses not to use the default way is going to win every time, right? That's kind of the the big problem, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's de it's definitely a cat and mouse game I see, right? Because like you have like I'm trying to think of a good example here. Like let's just go back, I guess, to the dumpy LSAS, right? Because it seems like every other week, I guess, it's kind of quiet right now, but here soon it'll pick back up. Some there's going to be a high tick and new dumpy LSAS tools that just typically come out. Um, but it, it seems like there's just a general cat and mouse game in terms of like detection and you know, attack. And I wonder if that can, like, I don't know. We've talked about this, Jared, where it's like, well, if you just go deep enough into, like, understanding the actual behavior and you start detecting, they're like, people can make all the tools that they want, right? But hopefully they go through that choke point that you've identified because you did that proper analysis. Yep. Uh, it's just, what I see is that level of depth not ever happened. Now, we've also talked about this where it's like, not every technique needs that level of analysis maybe right I, so like, like i think that not all techniques are actually techniques like not all miter attack techniques are actually techniques in the, i agree in the sense yeah, that yeah, we yeah. think of them but yeah yeah so that, and so that probably is what you what you're getting at when not all techniques need that level of analysis that's probably because they're not actually techniques sorry well it's okay yeah so let's let's talk about the schedule okay yeah good point so let's talk about the scheduled task one so are we saying a technique of scheduled task is the registration of the scheduled task, or are we saying scheduled task is the starting of the scheduled task? I would uh, argue those are two very different things. Yeah, well, so with services, they distinguish that actually in in MITRE ATT&CK, but they don't distinguish that in um, they don't distinguish that in what's it called in scheduled tasks. So it's an interesting thing because like scheduled tasks and services, the reason I'm making so many wild assumptions with scheduled tasks, they're very similar. They're basically the same thing, right? And so, um, yeah, they, they, they are functionally equivalent. And so I think it's, um, and I, for those that don't know, like, I believe this is why you say they're functionally equivalent is because they both communicate with the SCM, right? Yeah. Well, I was, uh, they both have RPC providers that I think are yeah. pretty much the same. And there's like, um, they're, they're, um, you create some structure that is, uh, on disk or in the registry. And then that structure simultaneously gets added in memory, I presume. Like I know for services, that's true. Um, and so like one of the one of the problems with creating a XML file for a scheduled task, I assume, is that um, like when you create a service, the proper proper way, right? Um, it does two things. It writes the registry key, and then it also adds the service to the in-memory registry database. 
right? Yep. And so uh, you can create a service by writing directly to the registry key and skipping over the uh, service control manager remote protocol. The problem with that is that it doesn't get added to the to the in-memory database, and so it's not recognized as a service until you reboot the machine, and then yep. the the in-memory database is rebuilt from the registry. I like I don't know that that's a, like I've never looked into schedule tasks at that level of depth, but I assume that that's a similar function to where yeah um, theoretically I assume that's possible too. I just like haven't gone yeah. through and tested it because there's just a lot of other moving components yeah. there, and I'm just like. Theoretically, it makes sense. But yeah, so I just wanted to make sure for those that were listening, they understood why you say functionally. Yeah, I think the, the, the RPC interface and uh, associated procedures are basically the same. So if like yep. if, if you do it, so there there probably is a like schedule task create. You probably actually know this literally, Johnny, but there's a schedule task create, which like would create the task. And then there's like a schedule task execute. But the execute, like because you, you can execute schedule tasks in a non-scheduled manner right you could just say like run this task yeah so there's there's like three different things and like this is keep in mind like this isn't the old way this is kind of the new way because like microsoft has the whole like jobs kind of thing right and so when i say scheduled task i'm referring to like the new kind of like com component of tasks so right you have like the com method new task that goes through a certain um com interface and then you have the register task definition, which registers the XML for the task, right? And then you're able to actually start the scheduled task. But the reason why I asked that is like, um, and also amendment, the reason why I asked about like the dynamic analysis, is because there is a piece within scheduled tasks, um, there's another com method that you can use to register, create and register scheduled tasks that is not used by any default way in Microsoft, like binaries. The method exists, you can leverage it, but through only dynamic analysis, that method would be completely missed. Um, so that's why I was like under asking about the- Yeah, uh, yeah. I think, yeah, from a dynamic analysis perspective, uh, especially if we, uh, if we talk about schedule task, we have a service that runs all the scheduled tasks, right? I mean, um, if I look at from the persistence uh, perspective, so if I'm trying to be persistent, then I need to register uh, a scheduled task in some way, either evading the event logs, etc. But at the end, that scheduled task must run by the scheduled task services. And instead of... Um, trying to see or find how that scheduled task was registered. I try to look at the executions coming from that service. And okay. especially if uh, if I'm concerned about uh, the persistence with the, the C2 channel. So if that is the goal, the main goal of the persistence, then I can check uh, if there's a process running by the scheduled task service and if that process is connecting to a destination which is uh, unusual in the environment so these distinctions or the how to say the features uh, in the machine learning uh, terminology makes it uh, more more generic or more robust at least in my opinion yeah i the, the reason why i ask like what is what does a schedule task mean to you in terms of like the miter attack to both you and jared is because like I feel like 
our observance of a specific technique or what that might entail might be kind of polarized by the telemetry available to us. So like the, the, the telemetry available to us in say like native logging in Windows is the registration of the scheduled tasks, right? If we talk about the Windows security event. So like when we say scheduled tasks, that might be the first thing we kind of think of, but is that like actually what we what it should be or should like the execution of the scheduled task really does that make sense what i'm getting at jared yeah yeah i think Mehmet actually touched on this at the beginning to some degree when he uh because you you talked about like is it the way that the scheduled task is created is that what's most interesting is it uh-huh. the contents of the scheduled task or is it what's executed when the scheduled task is run that's important and i like probably the answer is all of them are somewhat important um, but there's probably one that's more important and the like this goes back to that randomness point that i was making that's like we don't know which one's important the most important right that's the biggest problem um and the only way to figure that out is uh to test across a huge number of examples to probably uh evaluate that and then like yeah that that becomes ultimately like the machine learning problem i think right to some degree it's like um is it better to detect service creation or service execution? Because technically, you know, a service isn't dangerous until it's being executed. Um, yeah, so could you walk me through that, Jared? Yeah. And like, simply because of my own ignorance, because like which, the which whole... Thing, ma- which thing? Uh, yeah, I apologize. Like the execution of classification being a machine learning problem. So like, yeah. like I'm so ignorant when it comes to machine learning. So I just don't yeah. know like... Okay, yeah. So- the ex- is, is that basically just like taking all execution in trying to pick out the like the anomalies or how does that work i guess and no, okay, apologies well, for my ignorance on yeah that. so um this goes to that that randomness thing it's like what's a random string and it's like we're all we all have the ability to identify strings that are random but then we can't like if i were to say how do you like how do you know that that's a random string like what was the process that you used to evaluate that the string was random you can't actually extract the step by step instructions of how you determine that that string was random right and so that means that you can't you can't write a program that has certain steps to identify what a random string is because it's a it's too complex of a problem for you to actually like you don't understand it um you can like there's this idea uh in cognitive science to where it's like sometimes it's easier to do something than it is to explain how you did it right so like um i don't know you played baseball johnny so like uh it's like if i asked you to tell me how to throw a baseball like you would give me a really low resolution explanation of what you're doing. You can't, you can't actually tell me everything, everything that you're doing. Yeah. I just want the focus. audience to know I hit straight dingers. Yeah. So. I, he is, he is kind of a thick boy. So he probably does have the, he's short though. So I don't know. Thank don't you know for Hey, And then yeah. takes 15 minutes to get to first base after he hits it. Yeah. Hey, short Kings unite. You know what I'm saying? Okay. The, okay so <laughs> if we can't do like, and the point that I was getting to is like, Almost everyone would be fairly accurate if you presented them with a set of strings and said which ones are random. Almost everyone, like uh, my wife's not in cybersecurity, she would be able to identify random random strings pretty accurately, right? But then none of us can explain how we do that. And then it's like, okay, well, if I were to present you with 10 scheduled tasks, we, 100% we would be worse at identifying the malicious scheduled tasks than we would be at identifying the random strings. Hundred percent. I like. I don't think there's any argument to that. And it's like if we can't even explain what makes a string random, and but we can do that, 
then how do we expect that we can explain what makes a scheduled task malicious if we can't even classify, like we can't even perform the action? And so then it's like, okay, what we what we can do is we could do uh, like supervised machine learning, right? So it's like, okay, we're going to evaluate, we're going to determine a set of features that we think are valuable. Obviously, there's some subjectivity in this, which is like, was the scheduled task created remotely? Was uh, what's the binary that's being executed by the scheduled task? What's the name of the scheduled task? What's the like path of the binary that's being executed? Is it set to like execute once or repetitively on a certain time frame? Those are all the features that we're interested in. Mehmet, I'll let you. Yeah, um, I think so. By randomness, are you also taking the domain generation algorithms, for example, because there are strings that are that look random to the human eye, but they are generated by an algorithm. Yeah. So I, like, are we also considering them as random or? There, yeah, there's this. Okay, so the, man, uh-oh. You, uh, <laughs> there's an argument like, uh, do you know Nassim Nicholas Taleb, the uh, author of Black Swan? So one of the things that he, uh, in one of his books, I think it was, uh, uh, he has a book of aphorisms basically. And like one of the, I, I think this is where I got this from. It may have been from a talk that I listened to, but one of his quotes is, um, Something along the lines of like, to us, it seems like randomness is a natural phenomenon that like just happens in the world. Uh-huh. But uh, to some sense, like you could you could uh, you can make the argument that randomness is just representative of our ignorance, right? So like, uh, so nothing is like you can make the argument that literally nothing is random. It's just that we don't understand the algorithm by which that thing is produced, right? And so uh, like a domain generation algorithm, you could sit like it's not random because there's an algorithm, but there's like, you can make the, the argument that there's an, an algorithm to literally everything. You just don't know, like it's opaque. It like randomness is representative of the algorithm is opaque to us, I guess. Yeah. And so that, that's actually potentially what makes uh, identifying something as random as being so difficult, I guess. But um, yeah, so I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest, but that's my thoughts on it. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, uh, to your question, Johnny. Uh, I think based on like, is it the pre-execution or after the execution? I think it it, it kind of depends on the technique or the procedure uh, the, that uh, that you use. Like for example, for schedule task, you can monitor and detect the execution or the pre-execution part, the registration, and also uh, you can monitor. Um, what is happening after that execution when that scheduled task runs. But on the other hand, if you just uh, create an registry key for the startup folder or any autoruns folder in the registry, uh, then all of them are, I think, executed by the explorer.exe process. And you cannot just easily say that uh, it is suspicious or not. Okay. Yeah, my only my only like qualms is like it is hard for us to say every execution must go through X on the server side. Um and like identifying what the attacker controlled is a very can control is a very like I would say that the the barrier to entry on that's relatively high. Mm-hmm. Everything on the client can be controlled by the attacker. Um to the extent that they must go through certain like tunnels and hoops so like if you know they must call a function 
then we know that that might be a choke point or a pivot that we can yeah. leverage. Um, but when it comes to the server, like it's difficult. Like for example, if we're like uh, like WMI event subscription persistent stuff, like you can go through the scrons binary if you leverage the um, the the event type that allows like VB script. Active, but if like all script event consumer. Yeah, yeah, thanks, June. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, like the other one, the command line Fun one, will go through, yeah, we'll go through WMIP or VSE. So like those are two different server side things that are happening there. Um, and so identifying, like being able to identify and classify those differences is um, somewhat difficult because a lot of times when people are doing testing, they'll just kind of dynamically mm-hmm. run everything and it'll see like, oh, this spawn, this spawn with this command line. That's what I'm looking for. Well, it's like take a step back could you modify anything within that code flow that would allow the server to execute differently? Yeah. The, okay. So um, just to finish the machine learning thing, the, um, the idea is, is that we don't know what makes a scheduled task malicious, but we know tools that make ske- malicious scheduled tasks. And so what you could do is you could create a ton of iterations of malicious scheduled tasks and then you could ask the algorithm to basically pull out the features that have the highest weight towards predicting maliciousness. So you identify what are the features that I care about, and then you uh, you present it with known good scheduled tasks and known bad scheduled tasks, and you say, which of these features are best at predicting which one is malicious? And so you are the ac- so the accuracy of your of your approach is predicated on which features you select and how well like did you pick the most important features and there's some error there and then how well did you represent the range of possible malicious implementations uh in your data set in your test set but the okay so the thing that you are touching on Johnny I think there's like there's there's actually like a really hard problem cuz like one of the most interesting things like I'm trying to avoid talking about service creation because I got some feedback that I talk about service creation too much. Um, so hopefully, hopefully the person that gave me that feedback will be listening and uh, appreciate this. But it's just a, it's just a good. It's I'm, I'm not trying to go too deep into that. But one of the, one of the features that I presume identifies service creation as being malicious, that's like super predictive, is that the service was created remotely, right? Um, because services are used for lateral movement very often, and so if you're creating a service for lateral movement, you're going to be creating it remotely. The problem is, is how do you like, imagine that the feature is a binary. It's like a, a Boolean, a Boolean uh, data type. And so it's either it's is, is remote, maybe like created remotely or something like that. And it's either true or false, but how do you populate true or false? Right? Because uh, you create the service through uh, the service creation RPC. So uh, the service control manager remote protocol, right? That's the proper way to remotely creates, uh, create a service. And so then what you, like Johnny, what you did in a previous talk that we did at SoCon like two years ago or something like that, was uh, you, you like looked at uh, network events and were able to correlate that like from one system, there was a RPC request and then it was received by another system and then that correlated to the, to the service creation right the uh the the registry key being created and so that's one aspect but what if i use remote registry protocol to just create the registry key and so it's like okay well let's consider that but what if i use winrm to where i do everything properly through like sc.exe even but i do it over winrm well now it's created remotely but it doesn't appear that way because it's created via winrm or what if i use wmi or what if i use uh, rdp if i create a 
service via RDP, is that considered a remotely created service? And so it's like, it's really complicated to just give a true false answer on whether or not a service or something was created remotely because there's an innumerable ways that you could wrap that thing up into something and kind of make the the fact that it was created remotely more or less opaque, I suppose. Yeah, I man, I thought I think I think you kind of experienced this with me last week when I was kind of tossing you over the abstraction map with scheduled tasks a little bit because I I kind of like I don't know if you remember, but I took out like the network protocol side because I was like trying to identify or narrow in what network protocol someone may enter the box at is a super difficult problem to solve, right? Because yeah. like there might be an infinite number of ways, right? Yeah. They might be able to like mode into a WinRM, WMI. Um, there's probably like DCOM. Like there's just a whole bunch of different ways. Well, I mean, WMI can use WinRM. It doesn't matter. But anyways, so like the the point is like trying to identify the network protocols that someone can enter in at and do something remotely is super difficult, which yeah. makes the context grabbing also very difficult, right? Because yeah. you're like trying to identify the protocol by which they entered in it. And so that to me screams that like, we can't necessarily rely, like we can leverage, like I like obviously leveraging like protocols, like RPC methods over like Zeek is super important, yep. but leveraging protocol specific entries as a way someone from a detection standpoint, doesn't let me have enough faith in that kind of, um, and I guess like that strategy. So like the next question I had was like, okay, well, let me look at the server side, right? So like see like, okay, no matter what protocol they use, they have to enter in at this point. And that's what I can kind of like leverage as a choke point. Yep. I think that's kind of what you're getting at, but it's a super hard yeah, problem to solve. And as soon as you start to, I'm a very big proponent for this. And you know, you and I've talked about this, Jared, is like, it's, it's a catch 22 because it's like, as soon as you start identifying what's possible, and you think, okay, like these five things are possible. Your mind kind of thinks these are the only five ways it's possible. But what about these other five things you don't know about? Yep. So now you've limited your view even more than previously, well, the, right? Even though you've expanded your knowledge on it, you've kind of I, limited your view. Sorry. I, mean, I think the general idea is, is like, it's better to be less ignorant than more ignorant, right? And so the idea yeah. is, is like, uh, the chances that you understand every possible way that somebody could do something on a computer is like, pretty low or the, the the chances that you currently understand the every way that somebody could do something on a computer is almost zero for sure yeah. and uh but like you you could either just accept the fact that you only know a certain subset of ways to achieve something and act and then pretend as if that's the only way to do it or you can strive to uh you know like remove some amount of ignorance that you hold which is the exploration process or the research process right so it's like yeah it's, and like like the goal the goal isn't to know every like think about it this way anyway like the goal the goal shouldn't necessarily be to know every single way to create a scheduled task the the goal should be to be like constantly be becoming less ignorant in the different ways that somebody could create a scheduled task so that yeah i I, I, yeah to that point like um i think a lot of the stuff like exploration is good just for knowledge right and for kind of saying the technology in terms of research how much of that transfers in your detection strategy is also an interesting and difficult problem because but, you often go ahead i like the okay so the way that i think about it like so i i was kind of joking about somebody literally did give me feedback on the service creation thing but uh i i'm not upset about it it's probably true 
Um, but the reason why I use the same example all the time is not because I think that that's the most important thing that we could possibly be doing, but because uh, like it's valuable to have one example to where you dig into it as deeply as you possibly can, because that serves as a proxy for understanding the process by that you can apply to every other problem, right? And so like, especially in the context of the podcast, I don't want to have to explain the nuance, the technical nuance of every single problem that I ever, like every single technique, just, just so that I can explain something. Like, it's like, I'm not explaining service creation. I'm explaining the exploration process using service creation as a tangible example. Like I literally could care less about service creation. It's yeah, just, and it works. Like it I've works. already, I've already explained it. And so like, I don't, I can assume that the audience, if they listen to the podcast, understand service creation. So like, it's, it's yeah. an easy one that I don't have to, go on a spiel for 15 minutes explaining what it is every time yeah and the, and the nice thing about service creation too is like the technology involved is relatively well replicated across other yeah execution uh, methods something that so. i've learned yeah so like yeah everything uses rpc i think there's a yeah. there's an interesting uh thing with the you're you're talking about like do you want to focus your detection on the client side or the server side and like i think a lot of times people think of client and server as being different machines but uh, they should probably more accurately think of it as different processes, whether they're on the same machine or different machines, right? Um, so like, uh, for instance, if you, if you use sc.exe to create a service, um, sc.exe is the client, right? But services.exe is the thing that actually creates the registry key and does all that stuff. So sc.exe uses RPC to make a request to the server services.exe right and then services.exe actually does the thing of creating a service and so uh it's like and that services.exe could be literally on the same machine or it could be a services.exe on a remote machine um the 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 key is is that uh the server is going like is not in control of the attacker because there's only there's a conceptually unless there's like some remote exploit or something like that there's uh there's a finite number of ways in which you're allowed to interact with the server and that's like defined through our rpc procedures in this case but there's other ways that you could do that as well like com but the um one of the big problems of detecting server side is that you lose all the client context right so um that that there might be ways to collect that information as well uh, depending on how uh, how we are collecting the data and what you are looking for because uh, I recently bumped into any method. Uh, I think it, it, it's coming from the uh, operational pro processes, like the manufacturing, etc. how you okay. build a car. So yeah. there is a process for that. And apparently, uh, there is something called the process mining. And process mining is related to improving um, the process of building a car by looking at uh, by looking at the let's say not choke points but the small pros procedures yep. that that takes too much time so they try to identify uh, those areas and they try to improve and same goes for for example uh, online shopping so if you are uh, clicking too many buttons uh, while you uh, trying to buy something then uh, this method identifies that uh, you are spending too much time on a certain page or on a certain button or area uh, on that website. And now, currently, the recently, uh, it, it was in KQL by the journey. Uh, if you are interested in it, 
the scan operator. So there are methods and the functions that we can use, uh, maybe not in all databases or platforms, uh, for to use this technique, the process mining. So basically what you do is, you can basically say, there must be a connection from this machine towards a secondary machine, and there must be a logon event on the target uh, target machine, and I should see a service creation on the target machine, and this should happen in, I don't know, uh, 10 seconds or 15 seconds, because I'm not sure if you can just uh, make that RPC call to wait for 15 seconds. I think it must be happened uh, at the same time, because you cannot control that target. As long as you push the command, then it immediately creates uh, creates the service. So with this process mining uh, method technique or whatever call it, uh, you can basically uh, stitch everything together and yeah. then see yeah. all the details. And I think which is awesome because I haven't seen anything before. There are some uh, uh, complementary stuff for that. You can only do some sort of correlation based on the same machine, but you cannot put uh, stateful information in it. So you can basically say, okay, the machine, uh, there should be a machine, and then the process of that machine should go to the target machine, and then I should see definitely uh, exactly one process. So it doesn't have to be generic like any network connection. So you can easily uh, fine tune it or make it more precise if you have the information uh, but yeah i think th th this is gonna be uh, some sort of uh, next technique that will be used uh, in in threat detection right? very cool that, that's that's really it, it, after this if you wouldn't mind if that stuff if that information is public could you send me a couple of like uh links yes on... i uh, yeah, yeah. I, I also talked about it especially the kql operator uh, operator uh, there's a blog post I can uh, share. Oh, very cool! Awesome! Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah, that's and then it's we'll, amazing. We'll, we and, could, we can hey. put that in the show notes as well, Luke. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's super cool. Yeah, because I remember a while back, about two years ago, to the talk that Jared was talking about the SoCon one. I did. It was like, I mean, listen, this was a POC, so it's not the best way to do it, but it was like in a Jupyter notebook, basically like pulling the server side RPC data, network data, client, stitching it all together. It worked out well for service creation. Uh, and I was proud of it, how well that, like, I'm sure that there's more optimal ways to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your guys' point, like, I think there's definitely, like, it's a hard problem to solve to track back server to client, because I think it takes a decent amount of capability and technology to do that. And the issue as well within detection and a lot of organizations, they're not at that maturity to be able to adopt that process quite yet. Um, and so, or yeah, they're just not at that maturity quite yet. And so I've j I just find it interesting, like, for example, like we talk about like, Jared, you're talking about like comm and RPC. One thing I've come to the realization is like, cool. Like I've, I've been in this, like, you know, and maybe, maybe uh, I might be writing a blog on this. This is what I was kind of mentioning to you, maybe like prior to us starting um, but like understanding capabilities of technology, for example, like com is an abstraction above RPC. So if like common DCOM is being used, great. I know RPC is being used somewhere in the mix as well as WMI. So WMI is just like a technology that was used to expose a like, com components easier 
And so now if I know like WMI is being used, great. Com is being used. Get, in, inherently now I know WMI is being used. Cool. Com is being used. Key com, com and decom being used. Great. RPC is being used. So understanding that that flow in my head for technology from a defensive perspective lets me know, okay, like there's probably not a lot of telemetry for the com and decom stuff, right? Rarely for the RPC, especially ALPC, like local RPC, but like remote stuff we can kind of see. So like if WMI is being used, obviously there's, there's decent WMI, well, you know, to an extent WMI telemetry. So just understanding those technologies to understand like at what level I might be able to pull telemetry from is where I've been kind of like playing with, if that makes any sense from technology to telemetry. So I guess I'm, I sounded real dumb, both of you guys were quiet after that. So I guess you guys are just like, wow, this guy's an absolute idiot. <laughs> it didn't take that for us no to think that. <laughs> oh man okay uh let's see one thing johnny that you you touched on way earlier i said we'd come back to and we're getting towards the end so i just wanted to touch on it was this idea of um using like we use process access for credential dumping instead of read process memory for instance uh which one is more the behavior and one is more like a precursor to the behavior and i like I think of um, when I'm when I'm doing um, uh, what's the first not classification what's the identification when I'm doing identification I almost forgot my own terms uh, when I'm doing identification the question is uh, which like what's something that must happen in order for somebody to achieve the technique or execute the technique right and so in the case of credential dumping both of those are true right you you uh, Okay, maybe not both of those. You must obtain a handle. I use obtain very specifically, right? Because you don't have to necessarily open process, call open process, but you must obtain a handle and you must um, use that handle to actually read process memory. Not necessarily call read process memory, but actually read process memory. Um, but one is like a subset of the other, if that makes sense. And so there's this there's this like criticism of behavior based detections that it's uh, sure like what people will say is like sure it does reduce false negatives, which people just act like that's not that important of a thing and it's a hugely important thing in my opinion. But and they'll say but uh, it creates a, a ton of false positives, and it's like okay, um, like and I didn't know how to defend that like I didn't know how to respond to that. Um, but I think I think there's this weird thing to where. If you do a signature based detection like a like a procedure a tool based detection, you have no false positives because you're literally matching off of like a hash or something like that. But like once you go to the behavioral side of things, you inevitably you have like this waterfall to where you go from no false positives to just a shit ton of false positives. And then the question is is like okay, does that mean that the lower you go or like the more fundamental towards the behavior you go, the more false positives you have? And the answer is no. So you have this waterfall, but then you like you have more false positives for the open process call than you do for the read process memory call. And here's why. In order to read process memory, you must obtain a handle to a process, a read handle, right? So there's like, okay, you can look at it this way. Somebody could obtain a handle that's not a read handle, right? And so if you, if you limit your search, like if you only look for people obtaining a handle to LSAS, then that's going to have a lot of false positives. You could then reduce the number of false positives by saying, I only care about read handles because I'm specifically interested in people that are reading process memory, right? And so 
by you could say, I don't want to just see anybody obtaining a handle to LSAS. I want to see people obtaining a read handle to LSAS. And it's like, okay, we've reduced all the false positives of people obtaining handles that don't have the read permission or read access rights. Then you could say, I don't actually care about people obtaining a hand a read handle to LSAS. I actually care about when people read from LSAS because you could you could get a read handle to LSAS and never actually read, right? And so then like you're reducing false positives even further because there's a large subset of handles that have the ability to read that don't actually read, right? And so you just get rid of all those. And then it's like it, you could you could keep going even further and say like I don't actually care about reads. I care about when they read the section of memory where credentials are stored, which is even more specific. The problem is, is that as you get more specific, your ability to actually visualize that through the telemetry that you're collecting becomes less and less probably. And so it's like, what, what I like to think about is I don't, I think about like, what are the different levels of base conditions of things that must happen in order for somebody to achieve this objective? And then which ones can I actually see? So like, I like to work through it as a mental exercise. And then I say, okay, now that I have like these five different things that I could try to observe, which ones can I actually observe? And that like, so you go from what is the ideal state to what is the practical state, if that makes sense. So that's kind of like my process is always work through the, like, uh-huh. don't limit yourself to only what you think you know. Uh, like work through what, what could be and then say okay well like can i see that no okay well what about the next one okay i could see that one so i'm good to go and that's how yeah. i that's how i approach it and to, to that point I, I agree so one thing you stuck out at the very end was like don't be stuck on what you do know and like expand or whatever like expand your understanding it's so like for the listeners and just everybody here like it's okay to evolve your understanding of technologies and just know like that is going to come at the risk of quote unquote being wrong previously. A good example of this is a while back, I wrote a scheduled task blog with Matt Hand and I did an abstraction map with that, that blog post of scheduled task. Recently I've gone like been doing some research on different things and that led me into kind of looking at scheduled task again. And I realized that some of my understanding was incorrect and also could have been expanded more. Um, and that's just part of the game, right? Is like, and that is how we evolve as security people. I don't know what people like to be called in security. So security peeps. Um, so yeah, so I think like that is one thing that's not talked about often is like expansion and evolving of knowledge. Um, and like, it is scary to know that you might be wrong in the future or when you're re-looking at past research, but it's also a very effective and needed process. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Boom. Well, that might be a good place to wrap up. It looks like we hit the 90 minute mark. Um, Boom. Yeah. Mehmet, I want to give you last word, man. So if you have anything that you want to touch on uh, that we maybe didn't talk about or yeah, there are lots of machine learning stuff uh, that we can talk, but uh, I think we need another 90 minutes for that. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Maybe, uh, uh, yeah, maybe we'll have to have you back on at some time in the future and uh, yeah, yeah, focus on that topic. Yeah, that would be nice. Cool. But yeah, yeah, I would say, yeah, I think as I just uh, talked about uh, the process mining or the new methods that are applied in not in security, but especially in the uh, operational area or oper- not the OT network, let's say the manufacturing yep. 
or the other business uh, industries uh, some techniques, some methods, or some technologies that are already exist that we can leverage, but we don't know yet because most of the time uh, we just focus on only the threat, only the malware, etc. Yep. I think uh, we should be also uh, looking into those areas to see what is happening there, and maybe we can see something that we can leverage. Awesome, sweet dude, Johnny. You got anything else? That's it for me, man. Mehmet, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, yeah, do me a favor so and have a have a have a have a whiskey with Olaf for me, if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. You lose. Yeah, thanks again, yeah. and we'll see you. We'll see you later. Thanks for joining us, man, and uh, look forward to continuing some conversations on Twitter and uh, reading yeah, me blog posts yeah. and everything. So, yeah. thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Yep. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Detection Challenging Paradigms. If you want to keep up with us, you can do so on Twitter at DCP the Podcast or on our website, dcppodcast.com, where you'll find links to all previous episodes and their episode guides, as well as to our store, where 100% of our proceeds benefit charity. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.